This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. It's made possible by Citigroup. Thank you all for coming out in this miserable weather. This is really terrific. It's a it's let a me just say a lot of the people in here are like family to me, I know, really. and <laughs> so they didn't really have a choice. I know they didn't exactly. <laughs> I think they had a choice, and I think they came because of you. But I Thank have you. some disappointing news for all of your friends and, and family. Um, the ambassador, much to her mother's dismay, in fact, is not running for mayor of Chicago. <laughs> Right? Your mom wants you to no. stop. No. <laughs> That's an ugly rumor that we don't want to even start. But it is a rumor. It's kind stop. of an interesting stop. Okay. Stop. 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 16 <laughs> candidates. We will not make it 17. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here uh, with you. And uh, I apparently want to continue fighting um, global hunger instead of running the city of Chicago. That's fine. <laughs> We're going to first talk a little bit about you. And we always like to start a little bit on a personal level here at CSIS. Tell us about your name, Earthrun, and where it came from. Your mom talks about it. Oh, yes, she does. Um, my name, um, and those of you who've heard this story before, I apologize. My mother's name is Anne Cousin. Uh, and she was determined that her daughters would never have common names. So our names are Ertherin, Tybra Ann, Yvette Loray, and Zena Jill. We're also in alphabetical order by birth. Are you really? Uh, <laughs> which means I'm the oldest, because okay. I start with E, and the baby's name begins with Z. Yeah. And so she had way too much time on her hands. So well, any, <laughs> any interesting stories out of that name? Um, you know, you, you go through life with the name Earthrin, and you start off with sixth grade or fourth to sixth grade jokes of Mother Earth, Eartha Kid. You're very earthy, aren't you? Um, so you hear all of that. Um, but as you get older, I began to enjoy my name. I felt like Oprah. I can just, on Christmas cards, I don't need to sign <laughs> a last true. name. It's like, I just <laughs> write Earthrun, and everyone knows who it is. Yes. Um, and, and so I do appreciate my mother's creativity yeah. now. And speaking of your mother, so you grew up in a working class neighborhood in Chicago. Talk about that. Um, I grew up in a working class neighborhood with a mother and father who were true 60s parents who believed that with education, uh, their daughters could do anything. And they, they had that, uh, they made that investment in us early on. I was bused as a part of the Archdiocese busing program. Anybody, any of you here who know anything about Chicago, know that Chicago is one of the, if not, in the, particularly during the 70s, one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, and the integration, the school integration program did not take place with the public schools as it did in places like Boston, but in fact with, with Catholic schools where the archdiocese actually put children from the inner city on buses and sent us out to, um, sent us out to suburban area uh, high, uh, grammar schools. And uh, I started in that program when I was in, um, in fifth grade. By the time I got to eighth grade, I was the only person from my neighborhood that actually stayed there for the entire period of time. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't had enough. So 
Um, I actually then <laughs> attended high school at what was, or still is, Lane Tech High School. At the time, it was an all-boys high school. But, you know, I was 14 years old, and I kept thinking, 5,000 boys, <laughs> and they're going to accept 200 girls. Wow. You know, this could be interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> and how did that go? Um, we couldn't take swimming because the boys swam nude. Now, so, see, if you look back on it now, <laughs> some 50 years later, 40 years later, that's like pedophilia or something. <laughs> yeah. really weird. When the, the boys swam nude, so girls couldn't take swimming, but the you were able to start all of your own clubs. And so, um, for example, I was a, I, I know you all will find this hard to believe, anybody who's ever seen me dance will know that I don't do it very well, but I, we started a pom-pom squad, and you get to be the captain because there's only so many of you because you started it and it was your idea so all you know girls athletic association got to be president yeah you you know anything you start because there's so few of you you get to lead um and you know homecoming queen you know you get to run and you get to win did you win well i was a princess i was the queen but, uh, and, We're yeah. learning all sorts of new facts about Instagram. <laughs> I love this. But it was it was an amazing time because um, literally it, the the school was on Chicago again, <coughs> the northwest side of the city of Chicago, which is a very white ethnic community. And while we weren't bussed in, we took public transportation in from the other side of the city and you had all kinds of, of racial issues with bringing students from the west side of the city of Chicago to the the north side community so you learned early on uh, how to cope in areas of difference where you were not necessarily wanted. And what was your personal experience on that front? Uh, you know, from a personal standpoint, it, it was, I was one of 200 women, okay? And so it wasn't, for the, for, the, for, the, for the girls, it wasn't as hard as it was for the boys. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, 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 was a, it was challenging when you had teachers who had preconceived notions about you coming from the inner city and what you were going to accomplish coming to schools there. But at the same time, it made those of us who were who were the students, it made us very close, and many of the friends who were my best friends during that period are still some of my best friends today. And you cut your teeth on politics early on, apparently with baby seals. <laughs> you just want to talk about all of it. Um, the, again, um, was a, when, when the riots occurred in the city of Chicago, you all remember that after Dr. King was assassinated um, and Chicago was one of the cities where there was uh, significant uh, civil unrest after um, the, uh, and we call those riots, um, where the neighborhoods were burned down after Dr. King's assassination. And I was a well-read, sixth grader at the time, 
And while this, there were protests in the streets about justice and civil rights and the assassination of King and everything is burning down, I was focused on the baby seals and the baby seals who were being clubbed for their fur. And so I had a, I made handwritten petitions that I went door to door and knocked on people's doors and, and you, but just visualize this. We're under a curfew, there's, there's, uh, there's um, National Guard in the street and I'm knocking on the neighbor's doors asking them to sign my petition to save the baby seals in Alaska. <laughs> And my parents, I will give them a great deal of credit because um, they supported the, this activity. Um, and they said, however she wants to express herself, we'll just go along with it, you know. And not only did I get all of my neighbors to sign a petition, I sent it to the president. Um, and, and, and with my two pages of handwritten signatures, and he wrote back. Um, and thanked me, I'm sure, having worked in, in the administration now, you know that there's an office call that uh, does correspondence that actually sends off notes. But at, you're, you know, you're sixth grader and you get a note back from the President of the United States. And then Jet Magazine actually wrote a story. Um, and so you, you it, what, I, what, what it taught me at a very early age was the things you believe in, regardless of what's happening around you, you have a responsibility to fight for. Yeah. And that was reinforced uh, from, from, as I said, from very early. And, and your parents instilled you with a sense of community ser service, it sounds like. Um, yeah. Sort of, yes or no? And, and yes. Okay. Again, um, those of you in the audience who know me know all of this, and I apologize. But I will just say, my dad uh, was, and I, I say this often, was a community organizer before Barack Obama made it popular. Um, he was, my father was on the board of every community organization in, on the west side of the city of Chicago. Uh, and he believed that, again, what you believe in, you fight for. Uh, he was part of the progressive anti-daily machine movement in the city of Chicago. Um, and so people like the, the <clears throat> Congre Congre now Congressman Danny Davis, who was then a dashiki wearing, Afro wearing uh, young man, was one of the people at my dining room table when I was growing up. And he and my dad would, uh, would plan for voter registration drives and voter outreach drives and moving people to the polls and voter empowerment and fighting against the machine. And this was a time when the Democratic Party felt as if the, those who lived in these neighborhoods, all you had to do was give them a chicken or a ride to the polls and they would vote the way you want them to. And they fought against that. Uh, at the same time, my mom worked for the city. Um, and she was a social worker during a period of time when um, there was model cities and urban redevelopment and uh, those of us who've been around for a long time know that a lot of that was about moving people out of one neighborhood to another and it was when expressways were built down the middle of the city mm -hmm. and the impact that that had on housing and substandard housing for people who had moved from the south. 
and she was very much a part of the design of what is now case management programs that we are just beginning to think about from the international standpoint and that you don't look at a person as a problem, you look at a person as an individual and, <clears throat> and design programs that address the multiplicity of needs of that family, not just a housing need or a food need or an education need. You recognize that you have a holistic uh, family that requires holistic solutions, and and that's where she spent her entire career that's working that's on she got those issues. Mm -hmm. And did um, hunger issues were was that something that you kind of moved into later? Did you have a was that always in your it, it, you know, hunger, addressing the challenges of, of hunger, we, we didn't talk about it in those kinds of terms. My, my grandfather, my mom's father was a, um, was a farm laborer. My mother doesn't like me to say sharecropper. Um, and he, uh, during, you, again, you will recall that uh, we had soil challenges in places like Georgia where cotton had been planted for a very long time and then trees were planted. And I remember walking through fields with him in the 1960s, coming, driving from Georgia to Chicago, and him saying to me he wanted to see cornfields in Indiana and Illinois because he wanted to ensure that our nation could still feed itself because they were no longer planting food in his community in the way they had before because they had planted trees in order to rehabilitate the soils. Um, and, and so addressing the challenges of hunger for him was having enough, having access to food to feed your family and feed your community. Mm -hmm. And that was always part of it. No one in your community should ever go hungry. Mm -hmm. There should always be a plate that you can put out for somebody else, you know. Like my grandmother was, you know, people came over, you just pour a little more water in the pot and you stretch it a little further. Mm -hmm. And so for me, addressing issues related to hunger was, it was very easy for me to move into that place, but uh, I was given the opportunity to formally get involved in these issues after I worked for the Clinton administration and I went to work for uh, the retail food industry and then was appointed to the BIFET, the Board for International Food and Agricultural Development at USAID. And that was where I learned agriculture and, agri and, and agriculture related issues addressing the challenges of hunger in developing countries. Um, and then began my work with Feeding America because recognizing that working for large food chains that um, there were whole communities that did not have grocery stores. And so the, the issue of food deserts and, and things just evolved right. and, and here I sit. And this is your great passion and, and something mm -hmm. that we, um, we are going to turn to now. And this is a, at this point I wanted to let everybody know that you will take questions and just write them down on cards and we'll be collecting them. And uh, I know a lot of you are, are very focused on these issues and have sophisticated questions to, to ask, so feel free or not, <laughs> feel free to um, submit them. Let's just turn to where things stand right now after your decades in the world hunger arena. A report just came out, of course, that says um, world hunger has risen for mm -hmm. third year in a row. Where are we? I mean, where's the progress been made? What is the pro where? What are the hardest nuts to crack in your mind? 
Um, that's a lot of questions. I know. Um, <laughs> Take it the, where you want. Yeah, um, we are the 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 the, the SOFI, which is now the SOFIN, the State of Food and Security and Nutrition, was just released by FAO, WFP. EFAD and now UNICEF and WHO because it's more focused, it also focuses on nutrition. And we went from 815 million people food insecure to uh, 821 million for the third year in a row increasing. Um, you will recall that after the 2007-8 food crisis that uh, we saw increasing hunger, um, oh, we saw the 10 years of decreasing hunger where the global community prioritized addressing food insecurity and began the, and, and, and I say began because it began the work that was necessary to begin to address the challenges of those who lacked regular access to food. And uh, I say access because access is related to affordability. Availability of food was also addressed. Utilization, we still aren't addressing the challenges related to utilization enough. And describe that. What does that mean? Yeah. It means, <clears throat> availability means the, the three legs of the, of the three-legged stool of food insecurity are availability, is there food, um, that uh, those who need food can can readily um, have delivered or, or received. Um, accessibility, can you afford the food that is available? Um, and then utilization is, you know, do, do you have the physical ability to digest the micronutrients hmm. and the food? And in many places, because of lack of access to clean water uh, and issues related to sanitation, um, issues related to um, household inequities, women eat last in a lot of households um, where there's food available and accessible. Women many times don't have the access to the food uh, at the same level as the men or boys in their family, same problems with girls. And as a result, one of the things that we are seeing is an increase in anemia. That's another thing that came out in this report was the increased levels of anemia of women of childbearing age. Um, and then that affects, of course, um, the while we have an increased number of women actually breastfeeding in the developing world. Which is a good thing. Which That's is a, a good an thing. important thing. But yeah. when you have increased anemia, are those children receiving the micronutrients that they need, then need? Oh, interesting. Yeah. From breastfeeding. Yeah. And so that utilization issue. And how does that play issue, out, anemia, in, in a community? Uh, well, it's micronutrient deficiencies affect the ability of the body to 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 perform at its, mm -hmm. its highest potential. Any of us here who've ever suffered from anemia know that you're tired, mm -hmm. you uh, have an inability to work to your full potential, children have inabilities to learn to their mm -hmm. full potential. Um, and the, the longer-term effects of anemia can have an impact on other organ functions in the body. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 
not a physician, so I'm going to stop right there because the. So the, there has been progress, though, on this report said on child stunting, mm -hmm. right? So that's progress is an interesting word. Okay. We had 150 million children stunted last year. We have 150 million children stunted this year. Okay. So progress means that it didn't There's increase. There's a bigger, yeah. It didn't yeah. increase. Um, and uh, the, 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 what, we should, what we should also be very concerned about are the increasing numbers of, obese, the, of in obesity. Uh, the, here in the United States, two-thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. And the impact that that has on, um, on chronic diseases, uh, diabetes, heart disease, um, and the effects on uh, long-term effects on GDP um, because of absenteeism from work, from health-related um, impacts of obesity. And one of the things that the report also talked about was when a child is undernourished or fails to have access to the adequate nutrients at an early age, the marking that that does to the child that then you see in those same children who were undernourished as when they were under five, now obese as adults, <clears throat> and the effect that that has. So, so what is, in the report it says food secure insecurity can also contribute to overweight and obesity. Food insecurity. Mm -hmm. It, this gets really interesting because this, this, this gets into the psychological impacts of food insecurity and it's much like um, you see with any other, any other species, humans are the same, when, it's, when you don't have uh, regular access to food. When you do have access to food, you overeat. Uh, so the patterns of food consumption mm -hmm. When, when individuals are insecure, um, create habits that result in overconsumption of calories and result in overweight and obesity. And uh, we also know that in households and individuals, food insecurity creates a level of stress that the report also talks about the data is now suggesting that that stress results in, um, in stress eating. Mm -hmm. And any of you who have had those Friday night binges because um, you had a bad day at the office know what stress-related eating is about. Uh, but stress-related eating that is chronic because of issues related to food insecurity, I don't, you know, I, I can't feed my family on a regular basis. It's affecting my child's health. How families eat and how much they eat then when they do have access to food is, is increases in very negative ways. And the foods that we then consume or those who are food insecure consume, um, that result in obesity are high carbs, uh, high salt, um, you know, sugar, candy, the, 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 then, uh, donuts, the kinds of things that increase uh, calorie intake without nutrient intake and when over-consumed result in and overweight are, and obesity. Are you seeing that even beyond kind of urban developed areas? Are you seeing that in 
underdeveloped areas as well? We're seeing it, and we call it the double burden uh, mm -hmm. in places like Mexico City mm -hmm. uh, and, and some of the other emerging economies where you see situations where the, um, where you see situations where the population, <clears throat> when they're poor, they're undernourished as they have access to more income, they begin to adopt what we call more of a Western diet. They consume more carbs, more salt, et cetera, uh, that results in um, obesity. And so you have significant populations or, or growing populations of obese while you still have uh, large or growing and often growing populations of undernourishment as well. And you talk a lot about the importance of nutrition versus calories. Right. When you're there was a, a, for a very long time, the humanitarian and development community was focused on kilocalories, getting increasing kilocalories, particularly in emergencies. It was getting kilocalories, moving food. And we didn't talk about what food we moved. And particularly in protracted crisis, when the, when the household and the individuals are dependent upon humanitarian response, it becomes very, diet diversity becomes very important. Ensuring that you are not just addressing calories, but the right calories, nutritious calories, getting more fruits and vegetables as well as um, staples into right. the diet. So going back to the communities where we're talking about extreme hunger, uh, talk about how it feeds uh, extremism. It, it feeds um, Boko Haram and ISIS and their efforts to recruit uh, members from families that are facing dire hunger. Well, I, I appreciate the question. The, the, yeah, the reality of it is the, we often talk about, and, and I was very guilty of this when, when I served as uh, WP executive director, we say rhetorically that hunger creates conflict, um, and conflict creates hunger. Um, and having spent a year at Stanford, I'm much, uh, <laughs> and, and having the opportunity to spend a lot of time looking at the data and the research, there is a correlation between hunger and conflict. But there is no, we do not have evidence of a direct causation of hunger and conflict. So when I say correlation, what do I mean? In situations like the, the, as in the one you just described, where you have extremists in an area and there is hunger or food insecurity, one of the ways, one of the tools that extremists use to recruit is providing food to not, not, the not just the individual, but to their families. And when there is no, um, when the government is not responding to the needs of the hungry in a community and the humanitarian community is not there to respond, the, those who are in need look to those who are there. And when it is Boko Haram, and, and it's, this is, we, we saw this more with El Shabaab in Somalia than with Boko Haram in Maragori, um, where you actually had recruitment occurring in areas where families were trapped because they could not move 
uh, because of uh, the extremists were surrounding communities and they could not farm. Um, and even worse, when the drought happened, uh, <clears throat> that they could not, even if they wanted and had access to farming, because of the drought, the, 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 what they cultivated, they, what they uh, cultivated, they could not harvest. Um, we saw uh, El Shabaab providing assistance. And that moved young men out of families and into El Shabaab. Um, what we also saw was after the assistance is provided, oftentimes the extremist group no longer provide assistance to the families. And you have lots of women and children then on the move because they don't have access to food, the, the, the son or father is gone, and the effect that that has on increasing uh, hunger with the, the, those left behind. You mentioned drought, and of course we need to touch on climate change, and we seem to be seeing a lot of drought in the last uh, few years. Uh, before we get to that, let me, let me talk a bit about, because I did say that uh, there, there is a correlation between uh, conflict and hunger. Uh, and I think that is important to recognize that, and the, the, the simple terms that I often put it in is I say, in, when in, um, the, the situations where you have climate impacts, where you have non-responsive governments, where you have extremism, different factors that affect the inability of those who are hungry to, uh, pro to provide for their own food needs or no one, and no one else is providing for the needs, that that creates instability. And so if there is a car that is driving towards conflict, hunger is usually in the car, hmm. even if it's not the driver. The driver. It's passenger in that car. Um, and I don't mean to minimize the, um, the role that hunger plays, but I, I, I think it's important that we recognize that in these situations that hunger is a factor and merely addressing that food factor may not stop or negate the occurrence of conflict. And so the response needs to be more nuanced and, and to ensure that we are meeting what are the actual needs of the community and the households that are affecting the instability that could potentially lead to conflict. Okay. And again, I feel like after serving uh, as the ambassador and then as WFP executive director, uh, when you are the, the leader of WFP, you getting food to people, and that's your answer. But what we realize is that we need to, and the communities of responders need to work better together to ensure that we have identified what the full needs are of those we are serving, not what we as an institution can bring to the response if we expect to 
truly address the effects that hunger and those other factors have on the potential for conflict. Okay. Climate change. Let's go ahead and start collecting questions. We have a bunch of stuff to cover, but. Climate change. Um, if you read the State of Food Insecurity and Nutrition Report last week, you will note that the drivers of the increase in food insecurity were, again, just as they were last year, conflict, climate, and uh, economic downturn. And because last year's report focused so much on conflict, it was very interesting to see that this year's report spent the most of the, the data in this year's report um, is focused on climate um, and recognizing the role that climate has in creating hunger. The reality of it is that 80% of the world's most vulnerable people also live in the, the most climate marginal places on earth. We know, on, and the, after the Paris Climate Summit, that uh, adaptation, mitigation, resilience building are the answers to addressing the challenges of those who live in climate marginal places. Yet the funds that are necessary for adaptation, mitigation, and building resilience have not materialized at the levels that are necessary to address the challenges that are being faced by that population that lives in climate marginal places. And more erratic rains create more flooding, more droughts, impact agricultural productivity, of those who are already in quite marginal situations, resulting in hunger. Uh, the response to that, we see the Sahel, and I want to applaud all of you here who work in NGOs and the UN uh, for the work that you performed in the Sahel over the last six months because back in February, we were all looking at the possibility yet again of a famine in the Sahel between July and September. It did not materialize because the money did. Hmm. And the That's work that was point. necessary materialized. But this gets back again to the challenges of conflict. And um, there are many who would argue that the reason money materialized was because of the awareness of the international donor communities of the rise in extremism in Niger and Mali and Northeast Nigeria and Cameroon and the effect that failure to, failure to respond to the hunger needs in those populations could increase extremism in those populations and an area that is quite vulnerable. Um, at, at the end of the um, Libya conflict and the, the response, the 2012 response to the potential uh, food crisis in the Sahel, I remember, um, I, I believe it was Kristalina Georgieva at one point who said it was easier to get a grenade in northern Mali coming from Libya than it was to get a piece of bread because of the amount of arms and that were floating and mm. black marketed in an area that was food insecure. 
that situation has not changed. Hmm. And in fact, the, um, the AFRICOM um, has raised an alarm with the administration about suggestions of reductions of U.S. forces in that area and the potential impact that that could have with an, uh, an unstable Libya with um, ISIS-related forces moving into the area, control, potentially controlling oil fields and mixing with um, all of the Boko Haram, the al Dine, uh, the ISIS in the Maghreb, um, the, the, the names of all of the different splinter extremist groups that are now taking up posts across that very insecure region and the potential for conflict many would say was the reason that the international community rushed in to and provided the financial assistance that was necessary for humanitarians to address what could have otherwise have been a famine. All I say is as a humanitarian, I'm glad they did because babies did not die because the humanitarian community was able to respond because financial access, financial resources were made available and the humanitarian community had the access that was necessary to reach those who otherwise would. So on the balance, I mean, we, we, we've discussed the challenges that you're facing, mm -hmm. whether it's um, conflicts, whether it's climate change. On the good news front, as I would call it, um, it give us some perspective on that, technology, uh, private sector efforts that have come in, how, how, how come those aren't making more of a difference? They are. They, they, there is a significant, I just left last week, uh, I was in Rwanda, some of you may have been there as well, for the Africa Green Revolution Forum, mm -hmm. where there was the largest uh, forum that they've held and they've been holding these gatherings for 15 years, and it was the largest one with over 3,000 people, with uh, half the people there from the private sector and privacy with, because of the investments that private sector is now making in um, agricultural development on the continent of Africa. Um, in, uh, the, in, and the, the reality is that uh, there, are, there are any number of programs that representatives of FAO, WFP, um, the Mercy Corps, all of the those who are working in these areas can tell you about the projects that are happening that are increasing agricultural productivity across the continent. The reality of it is, and this is back to conflict again, where there is conflict there will not be development. And I, there are those who would argue that we should have uh, conflict mitigation and conflict uh, by uh, re re conflict reduction by addressing development and resilience issues during conflict. The data doesn't hold up. You that you can't change people's lives if they are in fear. Fifty-six percent of population affected by conflict live in rural areas. That's where agriculture takes place. So talking about increasing livelihoods and livelihood productivity 
in an area that is affected by conflict is not happening. But in places like Rwanda, you are seeing significant increases in agricultural productivity. Um, Zambia, um, the Ethiopia is a, another good news story where you know they have 50,000 extension workers working um, now in, across the entire country in Ethiopia working to um, address challenges of, um, of increasing quality and quantity of yields and recognizing that it's not just about uh, agriculture, it's also about the entire food system. So there's a lot of work that FAO and others are doing with governments and private sector on building markets to ensure that uh, when farmers increase yields, they have access to, to markets so that they have predictability of incomes. Um, and you hear me talking a lot about Africa, not about uh, when I talk about conflict and climate, but because it's not about, I haven't talked about India, Asia, and Latin America. There's significant progress that has been made in agricultural productivity because of private sector investment, mm -hmm. technology improvements in agriculture in Asia and Latin, Latin America. Uh, but then you have Venezuela, and we won't go there because that was So um, here's an interesting governance question. There's some statistical evidence to suggest that food is used as a vote-buying tool of emerging established democracies in the developing world, particularly in Africa. How does this impact um, equity of access and availability of nutritious food for all citizens in these countries? Well, because elections only happen once a year, if, if, if you're dependent upon vote buying to address challenges of food insecurity, you have a hungry population 364 days a year other than the day of the election. Um, and if, if, if we want to criticize, I, I, you know, it wasn't long ago that in many neighborhoods in the United States we use food as a vote buying tool. Uh, and then that doesn't make it right. Uh, but it is also the the impact that food on on in elections has on food insecurity. I would argue is minimal. The challenge is when food access and food distribution is related to um, political relationships, and whole communities are are limited in their access to food because they did not support a particular candidate in an election or they are from a particular minority group in uh, a country that is out of favor with the party in power in that country. Those types of, those are governance issues that do directly affect whole communities in many places around the world where we know that there are inequities in access because of tribal, clan, political, and community differences. Great, so this is an interesting question. There's an incredible group um, right over here to, to our left of midshipmen and women from the Naval Academy. Welcome, welcome. Um, what's the one thing you'd like them to remember about national, secure, national security and food security as they go through their careers? Mm -hmm. Food is cheaper than guns <laughs> and bullets. The reality of it is, now, again, let me not minimize or make light of the reality of this. Addressing the challenges of community stability through building resilient communities that have the, the access to the services that they need, education, health, food, 
create the stability that limit the need for military action. And so in the food, when, when I say that there is a correlation between hunger and conflict and community instability, the investment, having the military and the defense community uh, supporting and educating and lobbying members of Congress and uh, policy leaders about the value of these investments in long-term security has been I, I, nothing less than a godsend for those of us who, um, who advocate for adequate investment because you carry a credibility when you recognize that you, if you can avoid the fight and the conflict by creating stable communities and you lobby and support for that, your long-term ability to protect is even greater. Well said. Thank you. Do you think that the anti-meat campaigns are harming the ability of food insecure populations to have access to protein, particularly protein from animals? I would add to that anti-GMO <laughs> campaigns. Um, there is a Lancet Eat report that is in um, that is in development right now that uh, that will was scheduled to come out in September is now the 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 report is now due for publication in December that will put forward the diet for planetary health for human health and planetary health and the suggestion from the early report the, the early um, leaking of information from the report is that um, there will be a, a suggestion that we move towards more plant-based proteins and as opposed to animal protein. Uh, for planetary health because of the effect that uh, the greenhouse gas emission of livestock and dairy um, uh, have on the planet and the effect that the, the, uh, an animal diet has on the body. Um, the, the, the response from the, the, the livestock and dairy community has been quite interesting. Um, and it is, there's a significant amount of research happening today on reducing the uh, emission, uh, reducing the um, greenhouse gas emission is methane um, from cows belching, those of you who don't know farms. Um, that and, and so the, the, there's a significant amount of research going into changing of feeds to support reduction in, in emissions uh, to address some of the challenges of livestock and dairy on, on planetary health. There is um, a, a campaign around moderation. Uh, and and uh, you know I I was I'll be very honest and I you know I'm being taped to and I'll say this I have been very honest I I say as a we are a culture and uh, globally 
for, in, in, for the majority of the world's population of, of carnivores. And the suggestion that we are going to make a radical shift from uh, animal protein to plant-based protein um, and the and, and that that will solve the health problems and the planetary problems, um, I am doubtful. Uh, I, moderation is, is, from a health standpoint, whether you're talking about carb intake, salt intake, sugar, and, uh, and, and, or, or, meat, or meat intake. Uh, we have a challenge as Americans with the word moderation. Um, and, and where are you, let me ask you this, where are you on GMOs? Um, we've had the, Melinda Gates sitting there, um, very concerned about the anti-GMO campaigns. And, and, the, the, and I, let me just say from the standpoint of the hungry person who needs access to a diverse diet, the challenge of deciding the, the, the North the obese North telling the undernourished developing world uh, what their diet should include is a bit, I'm a bit cynical about that. Uh, and the effect that that has on access to food, whether we're talking about plant-based um, plant-based protein or GMOs. The reality is the science, and this, my time on the BIFAD helps me a great deal with this, the science behind GMOs does not support the fear that many would express about GMOs. And the opportunity for increased productivity of agriculture, particularly back to that 80% who live in climate marginal places and where GMOs can provide more drought tolerant, drought resistant foods or access to foods, to plants that are more drought tolerant, drought resistant as opposed to the seed science, we need to embrace when we are seeing increased numbers of food insecure people. And my position has always been, let the science lead. And don't you And think, be honest about what the science says. And it, it, do you think enough people are, are speaking out about that with your point of view? Do you think there's enough people of your stature in the community speaking out about GMOs, for example, and countering the anti-GMO movement? No, they're not because there are a lot of people who would rather have popular support for the positions of uh, how we address challenges of food insecurity under an overnourishment as opposed to those of us who have spent time in the field and looked in the face of a mother who cannot feed her child because the, the rains didn't come and the seeds that they have were not drought resistant or drought tolerant. And what I'm even more frightened about is CRISPR and the new genetic science that is, that is providing for not, not an, 
and inclusion of external matter, but addressing the challenges of gene um, editing is now in Europe, they, there is a movement to even limit or prohibit that work. And uh, again, that is, if you look at agriculture today, there is nothing natural about agriculture. We have been hybrid, we've had hybrid plants for 10,000 years. Um, and gene engineering, uh, particularly with CRISPR, is, I say, 21st century hybrids. And when we can't use science to make our food production better, we not only detrimentally impact the ability of those who live in those marginal places, we are beginning to affect diet and diet diversity and access to food potentially in our own country as we are seeing more effects of climate on, um, on agricultural production even here in the United States. Thank you for that. Um, we've come to the end of our time and to finish things out, we often have, we attract a lot of people to these uh, events that are early in early ish stages of their career. So we, I would like to end on some career advice. Um, there's for those starting out in the humanitarian and development professions, mm -hmm. what would be your advice? Recognize that these are not jobs. They, if you want to work in the humanitarian and development arena, it's a lifestyle choice. And it's a lifestyle choice, not just for you, but for your family. Um, you, you, um, I, I say that I have, have spent, uh, the, particularly the last 12 years of my life, uh, in some of the worst places in the world. Um, and if you want to make a difference, you are not going to live in Copenhagen, London, and Rome even. Well, wait a um, second, you lived there. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and one of the things that I often said to my colleagues was that, uh, that I would not send anyone any place that I would not go. So I have slept in, in uh, hotel rooms in Yemen watching the, the, the flare tail of bombs falling on the other side of the city in Sana. I've sat with mothers in Sahel in the middle of, of droughts where they have absolutely nothing. I, I've been in the Central African Republic the day after um, the, the, the conflict um, occurred. And, and you need to have the capacity, whether you are working there on a regular basis or you are, um, you are leading those organizations, to know that your responsibility is to go where those you serve, um, to go to the places of, for those you serve to recognize that it is not about your institutions and your particular mandates. It is about the people that we serve in these roles. And it is the most rewarding work that you will ever do. It is the most challenging work that you will ever do. But you will sleep well every single night knowing 
that you've done and a work that is not just in, in, if you're doing it right, not just saving lives, but helping change people's lives around the world. So I say to young people, the water's fine, come on in. Um, I have more of my career behind me than ahead of me, and I love seeing young people who are interested in taking up the mantle, rolling up their pants legs, and getting out there and doing the work. So it's, it doesn't, you're not gonna get rich doing this work. So, you know, if, you, if you're coming from Silicon Valley and you want to, uh, you think you have a tech solution that will address the challenges of feeding hungry people, um, that solution may and feed hungry people and the thank yous that you will get from those people that you serve is probably the, for, you will find is, is, is a more rewarding compensation than the financial compensation that you receive from the, um, from the invention, from the work, from, from your efforts. And so thank you for wanting to do the work. So Ambassador Cousin. I just want to say in closing, not just your words are an inspiration, but your life is an inspiration. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, again. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.